As Chief Operating Officer for Topgolf USA, Jennifer Gray's highlight reel includes overseeing Topgolf's over 70 venues and 20,000 associates. She looks over our food and beverage program, guest support center, golf services, Topgolf coach instruction, and high priority strategic projects. Jennifer, AKA Jen with a G, joined Topgolf for Maggiano's Little Italy, where she served as co-president and chief operating officer, overseeing 50 plus restaurants and 10,000 people. She started her journey at On The Border in 98 as a server and bartender and worked her way up through the Brinker International family of brands. She led in a variety of roles, including Vice President of Operations and Human Resources, as well as Senior Director of Operations Services. Jen studied hospitality management at the University of Georgia and executive leadership at College School of Business at Northwestern University. She is passionate about giving back to organizations like Make-A-Wish and Habitat for Humanity. Jen enjoys spending time with her family, which includes her dogs, Cooper and Abby, traveling to experience new restaurants with her wife, Kim, and watching college football. And as Jen says, go dogs. We chatted with Jen about her career path that led her to Top Golf, and I'm so excited for you to hear the little nuggets of wisdom that she shares with us. Jen, you are our CEO at Top Golf, but I'm guessing you've had some influences along the way. How did the Jen Gray that we know today start? When I think back to what got me into the industry, it's really a couple of things. I think it's grounded in hospitality and inclusion. I grew up in a large Southern family. Both my parents had lots of brothers and sisters. And my grandmother was very passionate about cooking and serving a big Sunday lunch, if you will. And in the South, that along with college football are like religions. You didn't miss grandmother's dinner table and you didn't miss college football. So I learned at like five years old how to set the table and how to remove the plates and how to like make sure everyone had plenty of food and beverage. And just like every family, there was lots of discussion and fights and arguments and cheering on the team. But I grew up in the world where I was just in service of others. So I think that's what sort of grounded me in like this spirit of hospitality because food, much like beverage, much like music or culture or art, it brings people together and it connects people. And so I think learning that at a very young age helped me get grounded in what I really enjoy doing. And that is sort of taking care of others. So my grandmother taught me a lot about the hospitality principles. So you grew up in this big family and learned hospitality from a young age. When did you start thinking of hospitality as a career? I went to school at the University of Georgia. I didn't finish school. I came out of college to open a restaurant with, with two girlfriends. That's part of my foundational story. How did you decide to take that risk? I thought I knew what I was doing, which was a big joke. Um, so I literally had no money and uh, my parents divorced in high school and college. And so I was sort of like that scrappy kid that was working a couple of jobs. But I had started working in a restaurant when I was 15. And so when a couple of friends came to me and said, oh, we have this great idea to open a restaurant, um, I wasn't really affording my college bills anyway. So I was like, let's try it. I've been doing this for five, six years at this point. It was like the most monumental learning experience because I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, we literally turned a space that wasn't a restaurant into a restaurant. We bought equipment. We created a menu. We marketed ourselves. We what were the skill sets of the two friends? One was like my best childhood friend who had who grew up in the catering world. 
And so we originally were going to do a catering business. And then she said, let's just do a brick and mortar that's open for breakfast and lunch and then close and do catering jobs at night. And then the third person, and this is where I learned so much about business, is someone who I didn't know, who was a friend of hers who came in with the money and who ultimately pulled the money back out of the business after three years. I mean, the business failed miserably. But what I learned is, number one, who to go to, into business with and who not to. But also just that risk-taking can be a really good thing. On nights that we weren't doing catering jobs, I started working at an on-the-border as a bartender. And it was the first time I'd ever worked in like a corporate-style restaurant, one that had like big ownership and lots of growth paths, right? Much like Topgolf is right now, where there's a lot of opportunity for growth. And within like three months of me working there, they kind of put me on the road and I started doing a lot of training, a lot of openings, um, and helped that team open several restaurants over time. And I think that's where I really learned the power of bringing a lot of people together to keep a culture really alive and to accelerate the culture and to be the standard bearers for an organization. That training team, much like our T-Up crew does today, is they are the standard bearers of the operational standards, but they're also the cultural standard bearers. That place where I did a bunch of openings from the border is what helped solidify my mindset around being in a high growth organization is a place where the folks that own the standards at the opening and the cultural standards that we embody are arguably some of the most important folks on our team because that's where culture and execution meet. And so at On the Border, I gained, that's where I gained a lot of those preliminary skills. And then from there, I went into the catering business for On the Border and kind of grew that part of their world. And I was with that brand for five years. On the Border back in the day, their culture was much like Topgolf is today. And this was 20 plus years ago, but it was a place where there was so much fun to be had and everybody felt like they were part of a purpose or doing something bigger than just themselves. And I always knew I wanted to work somewhere that it was more than just showing up um, and getting things checked off a list. It was always about something bigger than us. And so for me, that's, that's why every choice I made or decision that either happened to me or for me along the way, it always came back to my why. And my why was to be inclusive and to be in service of others. I had moved to Dallas in that transition. I grew up in the Atlanta market. Um, but my father was ill, and I needed to be back to Atlanta to be closer to home. And so um, I started working at Maggiano's, which was my first kind of front-of-the-house manager job, if you will. And I spent six months in that role and got kind of tapped on the shoulder and said, we want you to come work in the kitchen. And it was foreign to me. Um, I had been, everything I had really done at that point was really more front of the house based. Although in my own restaurant, I can't say I wasn't back there cooking from time to time. But that wasn't all, it was never my primary um, position. And it was like, oh, this was another risk. Let's go check out the kitchen and see what I could learn. This was a high volume, high production, highly scratch kitchen. And I really, while I was, knew a lot about cooking and loved to cook, I didn't feel like I had a lot of expertise here. So um, I was a student. I learned every recipe, I learned every line check, I learned every piece of equipment, what produces, what produced what, and I was working under a very dominating chef. The chef I worked for 
was brilliant. And he taught me so much about recipe conversions and like how to make sure that, you know, from the back door to the plate, every single item that went out, it, it was as if it had your name on it, your own signature on it, that it was perfect every time. And it, it wasn't ready until it was right. It didn't go out until it was perfect. But that started at the back door with the products that we received in and and the produce and the, the poultry and the seafood and the steaks were everything perfect as they came in the door. And, and then did we do everything to them along the way that by the time the guests got them and they were like high satisfaction, um, it was more than just the, the 20 minutes of cook time. And so this is where I learned a lot about good ownership of the standard, but I learned a lot more about how following traditional hierarchy sometimes can slow us down. I was working with this chef and, and I was in this game of comparison. The game of comparison is a very dangerous one. It's one where we as leaders look around us and go, am I as good as that person? Am I as strong as that person? Am I also getting compensated as much as that person? And that was the situation in this role. I was actually making like half the money of this like acclaimed chef. And I remember as a very young leader going to my supervisor and saying, well, this is crazy. I work double the hours and I make half the money. And why is this the case? And I got some very sage advice at that time. That advice from my mentor said, stop comparing. Focus on what you're good at and what you're learning and focus on what's actually giving you the momentum to grow to the next position because this is a stop along the way for you. For him, this is his end game. I never framed it that way. Once I learned to frame it that way and say, this is just a stop along the way for me. This is not my end game. And I stopped looking around going, well, why am I working twice as much and frankly, making half the pay, instead of viewing it as this is such an opportunity for me to gain some necessary skills for whatever is my next stop. And what I didn't know at the time was that, of course, they had larger things in mind for me, but this was a, a place that I really needed to, to work. And I actually worked in that kitchen for three years, and I still view it as one of my most favorite jobs ever because I learned so much. I was totally out of my comfort zone. And I let that mindset around where you're supposed to be at a certain time, at a certain pay in your career, I let all that go. And I was like, oh, like this is an opportunity to really learn something new. And then frankly, I got really good at it and had to ultimately make a choice about whether I wanted to have a career path, you know, in the kitchen or whether I wanted to run my own restaurant. So you were there as a rising manager and starting to learn the next role. You seem pretty confident in your abilities at that time. Is that an accurate assessment? Not only did I was I doing that comparison from where he was in his position, I was also doing that comparison, still feeling all along that I wasn't good enough too. Like I was still going, I'm never going to be as good at, at this as him. The imposter syndrome in clear definition is just, you don't feel like you should have a seat at that table. And the that's actually just totally wrong. You've already earned your seat at that table. In my imposter syndrome, when I'm in that mindset of like feeling inferior, feeling less than, feeling like not strong enough, not smart enough, not whatever enough, the thing that helps me the most is remembering that I've already earned my seat at that table, um, that the experiences that got me here 
allow my voice to be heard. And there's also something about your physical body positioning. Um, it's called a superpower pose. And it's one that helps me like remember and be grounded in why my voice is important. And so it's, it's a very simple pose, but it's like a straight back and it's like an upright position that sort of has you lift your diaphragm, has you take a deep breath in and let air flow. And remember, we're all human. I think what the superpower pose does for me specifically is it gets me back to that feeling of like my why. Like, why am I here? Why is my voice important in this room? What is the reason that someone would have invited me to this table? And it's less about my experiences and it's more about my beliefs. Like, what voice am I here to share and why? Let's go back to the career trajectory. I think we left off at kitchen manager role. Where does the story go from here? Along my journey, one other big thing I learned, um, and it probably came actually out of that kitchen manager role to when I was running my first restaurant, um, and it was much like running one Top Golf today. <clears throat> I wanted to hire people like me. I was like, oh my gosh, I have the most connection with that person. We have all this in common, and what I learned is that that actually is not very effective. Like hiring a lot of people like you that have a lot of the same strengths you have, guess what? It stacks the team to have the same strengths as you have. And then everyone has the same weaknesses. And exactly right. And then you don't have things that other people are really strong at that you need on your team. It's almost like there's a group of people standing around in a circle and everybody is responsible for juggling the same balls. But if everybody is standing in the same spot of the circle, the balls are all going to drop. That's right. It's exactly right. And so recognizing very early on that I needed to surround myself with people that had a different, you know, thought pattern and different strengths actually is where it still goes back to grounded, being grounded in this inclusive thought, like including the perspective of others, including the strengths of others. Um, but we're sort of wired to kind of stay in our lane and keep people that are like us near us. And that's been the largest leadership growth path that I feel like I've had on my journey is building the first team of really diverse thinkers and really diverse mindsets. And and then listening frankly, to them. And listening to them. And then, frankly, that's that to me was the first time I ever had a championship team that won everything we could win. And it was because we had all of the voices at the table and we were respectful about listening to them. And guess what? We had a lot of productive debate. We didn't always agree, but we were very respectful. And when we left the table, we knew we would have an aligned approach no matter what. Even if we didn't agree, there was no meeting after the meeting. There was no like, well, I don't really believe or whatever. It's like we stayed at the table until we got alignment. And then from there, when we all left, there was no way that people were going to divide us because we were we were one team. You're committing to and the team we decision. We were committing to the team decision. Um, and that was, that was incredible. And it was a place where my journey and, and the learning of that um, – also meant like, hey, you're not going to always be best friends with everybody you work with. 
you're going to have people on your team that you don't always see to eye to eye with. But as long as you treat them with respect and dignity and you listen to them and you include them, then guess what? You're going to get the best out of the team. And that was that was an incredible learning for me. And it was also like the moment in that mattered the most in my career was about putting a team around me and being a part of a team that had diverse thought. So do you remember a time in which you realized how important that was? Was there a time where, you know, you were saying you first built a team that everybody was like you? Was there a failure that was associated with having a team full of gens? Multi-unit leadership is probably where I learned the lesson again. (laughs) Um, And that's a place where those individual leaders where you basically move from a position of impact to influence. So if you're running one venue today, guess what? You want a new habit, you set an expectation, you inspect that habit, 21 days you have a habit, you have like metrics or dashboards, whatever way you're gonna measure it, you can change behavior. When you're in a multi-unit leadership position, it's about influence. Anybody can dog and pony anything for three or four days when you show up on a visit. But how am I going to influence you to want to make the right decision for the right reason for the guest or the associate? It's much different. And that shift that I had and that mindset shift from running one single unit to running multi-units was a place where it would have been easy for me to put a bunch of gins in those leadership positions of running each unit. And I had to learn again that I still needed more diversity. I still needed more thought that would make the region the best team ever because I don't know so much that it was a failure. It was such a shift in my style that had to happen. And this was sort of the evolution of my learning to say, wow, now I've got this amazing team. We're all in the same place. We meet all the time and we are all working towards the same goal. And now it's like a region and I can't get there as often and I can't be as impactful on my visits I have to be more influential and so it's like how do you get several units to perform at a high level and it keeps coming back to this inclusive nature of thought and diversity of thought um, and diversity of skills and and then creating a space where actually people feel comfortable to call and ask for help I think that's another big learning competition exists outside our four walls Now, don't get me wrong. We have our own fun, our own competitions, our own internal venue competitions. But when competition gets dangerous is when I won't pick up the phone and call you and ask you what you're doing to win. Or I won't pick up the phone and call you and share with you what's working for me. And it's if I'm looking at that scorecard and I see somebody at the bottom and they're struggling that I have too much ego to pick up and go, hey, I, you know, I have some things that might help or how can I help you? Or if I'm at the bottom of that list, I have too much ego to pick up the phone and call someone at the top of that list and go, wow, I'm really struggling. I see you're winning. What are you doing? And so we have to have an environment where we it's okay not to be perfect at everything. And it's okay not to be at the top of every scorecard. What's not okay is not to address it and to live in a world where I'm just going to keep trying harder and muscling more. But guess what? Somebody out there out there has a solution and someone out there out there is winning at this thing. And it's we have to include all those voices to be the strongest team we can possibly. Or letting your ego, if you're at the bottom of the scorecard, letting your ego 
allow you to make excuses as to why you're not at the top rather than owning it and trying to learn. Jen, you have talked about going from starting your own restaurant to going back to serving and rising up through the kitchen, running one unit, and then going to support multiple units. You talked about how dropping that comparison mindset and keeping your focus on what you're learning has been so vital to your career. And you've also talked about the importance of building and accepting a team that is not like you. And now you're the COO of Topgolf. Are there any other silver bullets that you found along the way? A lot of times when I tell my story, you know, people ask me the question, well, how did you go from server to COO? And I, I can think of a few moments along the way that probably helped shape my path, but I don't feel like I have like a silver bullet answer. A lot of times I tried to always prepare myself for the next job. I basically said, well, what's the next interesting thing I want to go try to do? And I want to just start doing that job so that when that job does become available or something like it becomes available, I can then be the obvious choice. And so that actually propelled me along the way. What does that look like when you, you're looking around and you are seeing maybe the next opportunity? Do you go ask that person about their job? Like, what does that sound like or look like? I think it comes with two, two components. The first is you have to make sure that whatever your surroundings are, you're performing at a high level. So whatever your current job is, you have to make sure that you either have the team around you or that the work you're doing leads to um, a place where you have capacity to take on more. And then you start taking things off people's plate and go, oh, well, I could help do that. Or it, it goes back to being in service of others, like those that you serve in terms of the guests or the associates, and then those around you, your peer groups. How could I learn more about what you're doing? So it is in the frame of a question. Um, and then when, you, when you're willing to help someone, guess what? You learn along the way. You also learn when you teach. So like a lot of me preparing the team was like, well, let me show you how to do this. That gives me more capacity to do more too. So it's sort of a two-way street. It's like a teaching and a learning through every position along the way. Something that I shared when I was helping develop a teammate from manager to director of sales, and she was the best in the company, one of the best managers in the company. And what I shared was, now you have to learn how to help everyone else become the best in the company. And then that is what being a director of sales is. So you have to be able to translate your skills to everyone else and make everyone better with the interest of making them better than you ever were. When you were over one unit and the next, you set your sights on multi-unit and you identified that you needed to shift from impact leadership to influential leadership, how did you start to incorporate that during your time as a single unit leader so that you were the, the absolute next right choice for the multi-leader opportunity? It's the right question. If I think back to that time, my results actually got me the next job. So I don't know that I was as prepared for the next job because it happened pretty quick. I, I turned around an underperforming unit literally two to three years of kind of worst to first stories in a couple places and the results got me there. So if I had to target a couple of places, it would be those that were doing that multi-unit job. It would be me asking lots of questions about how 
some of this is just like, okay, what are you looking for on a visit and adapting to that? But I learned like kind of from every leader, like how I wanted to be and how I didn't want to be. I think I was learning to build great teams at that time. And that's the thing that has propelled my trajectory. Another thing that comes to mind for me is because I grew up having worked every job through the hospitality industry, people see sort of some sort of version of themselves in me. And so then they're very willing to open up to me about the things that they may be celebrating or struggling with. And so that's another perceived superpower is um, approachability or people are like, oh, I could talk to you over a coffee about my whole life. And I think it's a, a willingness that you have to listen and learn about someone that might be different than you. Like almost a, a focus. It's a focus to learn people's stories because once you learn someone's story, you learn their motivation. And when you can learn their motivation, um, then the sky's the limit. Jen, do you have a piece of advice that you would give to somebody listening to this podcast? I think my biggest piece of advice would be that when you have those negative, that self-talk or that gremlin, as I call it, that's telling you that you're not enough of anything, um, just be reminded that you are and that you're cared for. Um, you know, just as being part of the Top Golf family, you're cared for and that you earned your seat at whatever table you're at and that you also have a network of people around you for support. Throughout this conversation, it's pretty clear that Jen roots all of her actions in a mindset of gratitude. She is the embodiment of curious intelligence as she's always seeking out the opportunity to learn from people and through her experiences. She's intentional with finding ways that she can learn from situations and her surroundings. Jen shared some pro tips with us, including keeping a journal of all the things she's grateful for, creating a vision board, and staying grounded in gratitude. She says a couple of helpful apps that she uses are the I Am app and, not shockingly, the Gratitude app. So those could be two great ways for you to develop into the next level leader that you aspire to be. 